So we are in James chapter 2 and the second half, beginning at, at verse 14. So if you've got a Bible or something that you read your Bible on with you, then um, get yourselves there. And before we go, let me ask you, when you do something to someone or somebody does something to you, what is more important? Is it the intent behind the action or is it the action itself? Is it the intent behind the action or the action itself that is more important? Anyone got any answers? The intent. The intent. Okay. Yeah, but is it true that it's the intent behind the action that's most important? Exactly. What, what is the action? Is it the intent or is it the action? And is my intent to do something good doesn't result in me doing something good, then is the intent that important at all? Otherwise, I'd say 90% of our legal cases would just be thrown out because the intent was good, right? So to begin our time in James this morning, I deliberately want to confound our received expectations and opinions of what is most important around our doings and our thinkings and our feelings. If I have a, um, an irritable thought, is, is that irritable thought more important or less important than how I choose to act after I have the thought? Anybody got any ideas about that? So if I have an irritable thought, an irritated thought, Let's presume it's um, like this morning when I got up super extra early to beat the, ch the children and to be up before the morning prayers so that I had a little bit of time. And the moment I got downstairs, I heard through the monitor, Daddy! <laughs> and yes, I am compassionate. And so I did have a level of compassion, but also a level of irritation. What's more important, the irritated feeling I had or the action I made as a result of that? The action. Oh ho. So we've, we've changed a little bit, haven't we? It depends on the action, right? So if I made a good action, then, um, uh, then the action is more important. But if I made a bad action, is, is the action still more important? Yeah, arguably it is, but it condemns me rather than you know, redeeming me. Yeah, and ultimately, who knew how I was feeling when that monitor went off? I mean, there wasn't anyone else here, so, you know, aside from that, imagine you were watching. Who knew how I felt when the monitor went off? Lots of people think they, they empathize, but no one really knew what was happening in my heart and my brain. But did you, would, would you have seen what I'd done and heard how I'd spoken, shouted at them? No, I didn't shout at them. You, you would have. So I wonder, I'll ask it a third time, what is more important, what we do or the intent behind it? The feelings and the thinkings that happen or the doings that happen. And I don't think it's as simple as one or the other. So um, in that spirit then, should we read this passage? So I'm reading from um, James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? That would have been a good question to start with. Wouldn't it? I should have, should have done that. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not, accom- is not accompanied, sorry, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Well, some of what we've talked about already is kind of written down and spelled out in the passage. I guess uh, it is a tricky passage. I'm going to use, uh, there's, a, there's a, a gentleman, a theologian that writes, um, unsurprisingly, theology, and has a, a commentary on James, uh, and I particularly like him because his name is Douglas Moo. Yay, Douglas Moo. And um, not, only, not, not only is the content of what he writes very good, but I always remember his name. So, um, Moo is who I'm uh, using to, to help unpack some of the structure of this passage. Um, but the first verse, then, of, of this section that we've just read, so verse 14, James introduces the topic. He introduces it with a question, a little bit like I did at the start here. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, do they really have faith? Can that faith save them? If they have a faith, but there's nothing coming out of that faith, well, what's it worth? And then he starts um, with an illustration. This is quite a common kind of literary technique um, in in letters like this to to describe your position. You kind of have a made-up other person that you're having a conversation with to help you express your position. So it then begins in verse 15 and 16 with an illustration. So, so what good is it? So try and, trying to put some evidence on the point that James is making. So suppose a brother or sister goes without clothes and they don't have enough food for the day and you say something really nice to them and don't do anything to help. 
Most of us have probably done that at some point, but also most of us would probably agree that that's fairly pointless, or at least toothless. It's still a good thing to do to say something nice to somebody and to bless them, etc., with your words, but it's toothless. It doesn't have any bite to it. There's no substance behind it. So when you pass the, um, the homeless guy, I don't mean you have to give him food. That's not always the right um, approach. You don't have to give him clothes. That's not always the right approach. That's very nuanced. But if you just walk past and smile and say, hi, 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 um, to try and cover the fact that they're saying, can you spare any change, please? Is that pointful or pointless? Is there any substance to what you're doing there? Now, you don't have to necessarily take them into your home to make it have some substance, but how about we stopped and we had a conversation with them and we found out their name? And then when we saw them the next day and the next day and the next week and the next week, we build a relationship with them. And then perhaps we offer them also some practical things. Um, there are lots of reasons why it's not always the best idea to give somebody in a desperate situation just cash, but maybe we want to take them for something to eat. Maybe we notice um, that they actually don't have a, a very good sleeping bag, um, but we know that there's a sleeping bag at St. Luke's that they could have. So we call up Adam and we say, Adam, there's a sleeping bag at St. Luke's that this nice man I've met in the street could really do with. Could we have that? Can we meet a practical need? That's what's happening in verse 15 and 16. It's a sort of um, unassailable example of how James's point has substance. That good thoughts and feelings don't really mean anything unless they're backed up by action. And then we hit, um, in verse 18, this imaginary person. Someone will say, I have faith. Sorry, you have faith, and I have deeds. Well, is that really possible for you to just have faith? One guy is the faith guy, and the other guy is the deeds guy. James is imagining then, in his, in his response, which is the second half of verse 18 and onwards, and he says, well, faith can only be shown by deeds. So, show me your faith without deeds, which he's arguing isn't really possible at all, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, which is great, but even the demons believe that. And how much of, um, how much of an arrow is that to the heart of the person who believes there's a higher power? Who believes in God, but he's not sure really what, um, what it's all about. I'm pretty sure I'm in, because I, I went to church as a kid, and I went to Catholic school, and I do believe in God, but I'm not sure what I think about Jesus. It's not enough. It's not enough. Even demons believe in God. Something has to happen beyond your belief and your head and your thinking. So verse 20, um, James gives his 
main point, really, which is faith without deeds is useless. And that feels very counterintuitive to us. We've probably been brought up on um, uh, lots of Pauline theology. That's the theology derived uh, either exclusively or mainly from the bits of the New Testament that the Apostle Paul writes, um, where things like um, justified by faith alone are found. Actually, in the Greek, alone is not there. Justified by faith is what it says, but our good friend um, John Calvin added alone into his translation, and suddenly we all think it's by faith alone and nothing else that we are justified. But it feels, um, I guess feels worrying because we suddenly feel insecure, because we suddenly start thinking about all the things we do or we don't do, and how that might paint a different picture of our security if we're actually judged based on our actions, not just on something else. That's not quite what James is saying. It's not that there is no place for faith. It's not that that's not important. And it's not that um, you can sort of lose your salvation by not doing good things after you have been saved. But more that have you truly been saved if you believe and nothing happens? Have you really received the Spirit within you if there's no transformation apparent in the way that you live? And then he gives a couple of examples. He talks about Abraham and Rahab. And he rounds it up in verse 26 by saying again, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's not that it isn't faith. It's that it has no life. There's nothing to it. Now, really, um, I want to mostly spend our time in verse 21. Um, so if you can, or you might not need to flick to it, if you can have a, an eye on that. This is the trickiest verse. You might not know it. Um, but this is the trickiest verse. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Um, well, Paul says in Galatians um, 3, verse um, 6, but 5, 6, and 7. Should we have a look at that? Can you, can you turn to Galatians 3? He says, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. It, it sounds like the opposite point. But Paul is combating the opposite problem where it's all about following the letter of the law and nothing at all about what's happening inside and about your heart. But he uses this example of Abraham and this, this first um, covenant that's made in Genesis 15. 
And then in Romans 4, should we, should we flick to Romans 4? I hadn't intended it to be a fastest finger first sermon, but... In Romans 4, the first nine verses there, we don't need to read all of them, but if, you, if you're good at scanning, then scan through them. In verse 5, however, the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So there's clearly something also in Scripture about it not being all about what we do, but about trusting God and all that he has done. And there's that phrase, credited as, as righteousness, which is what um, uh, it, it says about Abraham when he believes in God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Well, let's unpack that a little bit more. If we look at um, Genesis 15, or you've got to flip all the way back now. Genesis 15, where that passage actually is, and verse 6. This is before Abraham is called Abraham, so he's still Abram. And it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited, to, he credited it to him as righteousness. What did he believe of the Lord? Well, he believed that God would bring him offspring that, count, that counted more than the stars. That he would have a child, even though he was old, well advanced in years. He believed that all that would happen. And it was credited to him as righteousness. But James um, uses the same passage or the same uh, example of a person and seems to come to a slightly different or nuanced position. And we'll pick that up in a second. Um, Paul, in his New Testament stuff, uses the verb justify, um, which is uh, what, what we've read as kind of righteousness sometimes, credited as righteousness, or is justified. Um, uh, and he uses it with the meaning of the initial judicial verdict of innocence pronounced over the sinner who trusts in Jesus Christ in faith. So when you first um, believe in Jesus Christ and you trust in Christ in faith you have that initial judicial verdict of innocent so being judged innocent not guilty because of your belief in Christ but that's not necessarily exactly the same meaning that James is using the word justify for um, same Greek word but often translated slightly differently in in the English um, and it's also not quite the same meaning that is often used in the Old Testament for this word. And that more often, there's a different meaning, one that fits better with the Jewish viewpoint as well, which is the idea that righteousness comes, um, uh, righteousness comes from the same Greek root as, as the word for justify. Um, uh, and it's this idea that righteousness, which is, does anyone know what that is? Anyone sum it up really quickly? Righteousness? Come on, we use it a lot. Surely one person in the room knows what righteousness is. Yeah, being in right standing with God. So the state of being righteous is doing what is right, being right in the sight of God. Getting into the kingdom is dependent on a commitment to Jesus. So following Jesus. 
But righteousness is mainly, if not exclusively, the conduct expected of the disciple once they have become a Christian. That's how it is generally exampled in Scripture. Uh, If you take Matthew chapter 5, for example, in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that doesn't sound like what we do has no bearing on how we're judged and on our righteousness or our justification. Justify refers to the final verdict on judgment day, what Jesus will make of our lives when it comes to the very end. If our entrance into the kingdom is by believing, then the final verdict, the evidence of that belief, seems to be based on what a person has done, not just on a warm moment of belief earlier in life. And for me, I found that terrifying. Because I know what I've done and continue to do. And I know I don't even always believe the right thing either. I don't want us to be worried about our security our salvation, we're in. It's just what's happening after that. Do our lives suggest that we really have believed? Do our actions really reflect? Are they evidence for our faith? Or is our faith just that, just a thinking, feeling thing? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, I don't think that that means you don't get to heaven if you've ever said a cross word to someone. But there will be a judgment. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And what will that look like for me? What will it look like for you? The other meaning of the word justify is the demonstration to be right. So the demonstration of righteousness, the evidence of the faith, the fruit of it. We've all heard of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Anyone know them? Oh, love, joy, peace, patience was really good. And then it all sort of, I think we got them all, but in a slightly different order. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Like, what, why, why are they fruit? Because they grow. And what do they grow from? And is, is the fruit of the Spirit describing people, right? It's not... The point of that passage is not just, you know, so we can make songs and teach the children. Does anyone here show a fruit of the Spirit? You can be cocky, yeah? Why do you show a fruit of the Spirit? Because the Spirit's living in you. If he wasn't, you wouldn't show the fruit. If he is, you surely must show the fruit. This isn't a concept. That's Paul writes about this, by the way. This isn't a concept that's outside of Paul's theology, this idea 
that we somehow have to act upon our belief as well. The evidence of faith is the fruit of it. The evidence of having the spirit within you is the fruit that we see in people's lives, in their behavior, in how their character grows. So it's not by faith alone that we are justified. It's wrong to presume that all we need to do is believe with no behavioral change to go with it. In, in Genesis 15:6, which is what Paul was quoting, what we've looked at just before, that's the moment that God makes the promise to Abram, to his descendants. Um, and we hear that it's credited as righteousness to him that he believes. But in James's illustration here in verse 21, chapter 2 of James, he's talking about Genesis 22, which is quite a long way further on. And I'm going to read that, um, the first, well, I'm going to read from two to, first 2 to 14 of Genesis 22. Um, how are we doing for time? Uh, okay, we'll keep going. We'll read really quick. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Does anyone know what happens next? Abraham goes and he gets to the mountain and he goes up. I'm just going to paraphrase it because it's there in front of you. Um, lots of stuff happens. They get up to the top and there's no one, no other thing to sacrifice except for Isaac. And Abraham's faced with this terrible decision. Do I do what God has told me to do? Do I trust in God? Remember that this son of Abraham's is the one that is going to be the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham believed in, and when he believed it was credited to him as righteousness, what will Abraham do? Will he take it into his own hands and say, God, you promised that through Isaac, my descendants would number more than the stars in the sky. I'm going to help you out here, God, and I'm not going to sacrifice my child because that will ruin your plan because that would be the sensible thing to do. But instead, Abraham goes through with everything, ties Isaac down. I don't even like to think about what was going on there. I mean, I don't know how I would make that into a game that either Boaz or Ezra would think was fun. I would imagine there's a fair degree of screaming occurring, unless Isaac is a lot better behaved than either of my boys. And then at the last minute, the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham. And he replies, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now James says, oh, I've lost the passage. James says in this verse, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? He doesn't say, wasn't, Abraham considered righteous for believing in Genesis 3 when God said, I will make your descendants number more than the stars in the sky. No, James is pointing out that if you continue on that passage, verse 16 to 18, arguably more important, but we don't normally cover them when we're talking about the uh, Isaac thing. God says, and I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, which sounds familiar. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Important verse, verse 18. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So it's not just about the believing. This is the moment of consummation of the promise that God made in Genesis 3. This is the moment it actually happens. This is the confirmation of the word that God gives. This is when it's actually granted to Abraham as righteousness, not just counted as righteousness. When he acts on his belief, he doesn't just believe it in his heart, but when called to give everything, he does. And God says, no, no, you don't have to. I already gave everything. Have a goat. (laughs) Or something like that. And in the same way, um, in the last couple of verses, um, Rahab's decision to do for the people of God. We just read about this on Wednesday morning prayer in Joshua. Um, Rahab's decision to do for the people of God, to save them, to harbor them, and to give the city into their hands. That's the thing that makes her considered righteous, that includes a prostitute in the genealogy of Jesus. Not her good thinking and feeling and believing, her action, what she did. But could she have done it without the believing? Because she was putting a lot of her safety and well-being on the line. Well, I don't think so. I think they both have to go hand in hand. Um, I often say, well, I often say I'll speak for 20 minutes and we're on 29 at least now. Um, I often say I've been a Christian all my life. And I have 100% been a Christian all my life. Um, I don't know a moment I wasn't. I mean, from an Anglican perspective, it happened in 1988 when I was baptized. But I think even before then, I've never had a moment when I didn't believe in God, when I didn't believe in Jesus. And I've called him different things, whether it's Jesus is my best friend or um, God is my father or whatever. But I haven't always had the evidence of that in how I've lived. I'm a living testimony for what James is saying or warning against. I actually, I think, probably did harm to the name of Jesus by um, strongly telling people that I was a Christian uh, and then not living the way that God calls me to when I was at school and a little bit beyond that. Because I knew lots of stuff, and so I talked a good game. But when it came to it, I don't really do the stuff. I didn't um, abstain from what I should abstain from. I didn't refrain from uh, bullying people or um, lording it over others. And so then all it was, if people dug into it, was some kind of social club and tribe that I belonged to, rather than a real living faith. Because faith without deeds is dead. So the point from this morning's passage is that it is not by faith alone 
that we are justified. It is by faith. It's by faith and deeds. Because faith without deeds is dead. Hands up if you've ever been dead in this room. Yeah? In that context, people, don't, don't worry. I'm not asking you to say something really odd. But uh, my faith has been dead at times. And probably from time to time, even now, my faith is dead. The story about the homeless person is not one I tell because I get it right every time. We all do it. We're in a hurry. I've seen that guy before. I've poured so much time into him. But faith without works, faith without deeds is dead. So um, it's not a cheery message to start on, is it? But the good news is that we are empowered by the Spirit to do these deeds. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Yeah. We should expect in ourselves a change, a progression, an improvement. And, brothers and sisters, we should expect it of each other. Awkwardly. In conversation. And accountability. How many people do you think um, wouldn't get into an addiction were they to be kept accountable early on because of a healthy Christian relationship they had. Any addiction, whether it's alcohol, internet porn, uh, gambling, it could be anything. If you're kept accountable by close friends, maybe you don't even get down the road in the first place. So, who are you going to keep accountable? Because that's the easier one to think about. And what do you need to be kept accountable about yourself? Where today, this week, right now, is your faith dead? And how are you going to bring it alive? The answer to that is with Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, but it will also include some action of yours. And so what I don't want to do is have some response time now where we all pray about it and continue in the same way. Because prayer is powerful. But you know what? We are also powerful. And we have been given our own will to do whatever we want with. And so if we pray on the one hand, Lord, would you improve this aspect of me? And on the other hand, we wantonly do the opposite. And then think, oh, God is just not answering my prayer. I've always wanted to be better at reading the Bible. And I pray every day that God would make me better at reading the Bible. And your Bible is dusty on a shelf. 